This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. So today we will read from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who has been born of God and knows God, uh, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us, because he's given us his Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he is in God. So we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, hey, good evening, Theophilus. It's good to, good to see you again. Um, this past week, or the last week and a half, my family and I had the opportunity to go down where I'm from, down in Southern California, and spend some time with family um, to take our kids to Disneyland and uh, just enjoyed the sun for a little bit. So if I look a little bit darker, that's because I was uh, soaking up the sun rays on the nice 65-degree California beach. I was like, I will get some sun down here. Um, so this, before I get into the sermon, um, I want to kind of lay out like this last week was the beginning of what hopefully for my family and I becomes like a little bit of a release and soul retreat. For those who have been at Theophilus a long time, know that uh, we started a sabbatical rhythm a couple years ago when Joe and Asena, who helped plant this church, took a sabbatical on their seven year. And, And then after that, last summer, AJ and Quinn had theirs. And this summer was going to be our glorious sabbatical year. And, uh, Come to December, it's like, hello! (laughs) Uh, Doesn't look like this year's going to be very restful. Um, So being that uh, we have recently been appointed as 
uh, the lead pastors of Theophilus um, a few weeks ago, we felt it wasn't probably the most wise thing to do to then promptly disappear for two months and not come back. So our workaround for our family to receive the rest that we need and uh, to also be present is over the month of July, we're going to go on two small vacations. We're going to be gone for a couple weeks and then we'll be back in August and we'll talk about actual sabbatical in time to come. I so appreciate just the words of uh, just release and welcome from those of you in the community who have just like released us to to spend time together and get the rest that we need. This last week was perhaps the most restful vacation we have had as a family, and uh, I just feel a tremendous amount of blessing and release from you. So thank you for that, and appreciate your prayers for our family as we continue this process through the rest of the summer. Tonight, we, uh, we are going to continue. We're on the third week of a series that we're doing until Christmas time on the Apostles' Creed. Two weeks ago, I shared why we are doing the Apostles' Creed. Uh, if you want to hear more about that, you can go listen to that sermon. And last week, Jonathan led us off uh, with the very beginning, the, the, the introduction to the creed by leading us into what it means to believe. The first word of the Apostles' Creed is the word credo. And credo is translated into this idea of belief, I believe. And Jonathan last week described how when we say I believe, it's not just this idea of like this random acceptance of these facts, odd facts put together. That's not what belief means. Belief is something that changes us from the inside out. I like to think of the beginning of the Apostles' Creed is almost like this announcement. The authors or the community of Christ together, we stand up and we announce this phrase, credo, which means pay attention, listen up. I believe. Everything that's going to follow that statement, I believe, is a description of how I orient and trans my life is transformed by what I believe, what is core to my being, not just what I know or what I profess to know. This is transformative stuff. So, from the, so what this is going to look like, after Credo, we're going to break this down piece by piece and march through the Apostles' Creed. Today, we're going to look at the phrase right after that, I believe in God, just in God. If you were to look at the Apostles' Creed and I were to put it up there and break it down, you would see three huge sections of the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in God, comma, it probably should be a full stop. After that, after I believe in God, we find this list of qualifying, the qualifiers. Who is God? I believe in God. What's next? The Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth, right? So now we have the first part of God. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. New paragraph. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. Now this takes up the bulk of the creed. It's right in the middle. The majority of the creed deals with this idea of who the son is, and it goes on and describes the son. After it's done describing the son, the last part is the Holy Spirit. 
I believe in the Holy Spirit. And unfortunately, this is what we do to the Holy Spirit. We just give the Holy Spirit one little phrase. Like, I believe in the Holy Spirit, period. Moving on, (laughs) right? Um, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and then it gives the conclusion. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. The conclusion of the creed is the byproduct. It's what comes out of our life that is anchored in God, and God is understood as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So if you remember from a couple weeks ago in the early church, this was the statement that you would say. This was the creed that you would read as you were entering into the waters of baptism. You'd go down the steps, you'd be approaching your death, your figurative death in the waters of baptism, and you would say, Credo, this is how my life is going to be transformed from here forward. I'm about to enter my death and resurrected to new life, and I'm anchoring my life in this statement, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and what is birthed out of my relationship with God. This is how we stand on the creed. This is what the creed is in our lives and how it, how it anchors us. So today, though, we're going to look at that first section, I believe in God. The temptation here, like when I started preparing this sermon, my temptation was to go down this rabbit trail of doing like this apologetic or this um, a sermon convincing us in a world that has denied the existence of God why we should believe in God. Like here's your three points of why you should believe in God, right? But we are a community of faith, and the premise upon which we anchor ourselves is this acknowledgement, not only that God exists, but that God is creator and sustainer of this universe. And so I'm not going to spend my time talking about why we should believe in God, but rather why the belief in God changes everything. Why anchoring ourselves in this belief in God transforms us from the inside out and how it should transform us from the inside out. And what are we saying when we say, I believe in God? Justo Gonzalez, who's a Latin American uh, historian, probably my favorite from Yale, um, he wrote a little book on the creed, and he reminds us that we have to be reminded that the creed is not ultimately about what I believe. It is rather about the one in whom I believe. So when we're immersing ourselves in this, we are discovering who this one, this Father, Son, and Spirit is that we profess our belief in and how that transforms our lives, how it should transform our lives, and what we can do with that in the world that we live in. So let's explore this a little bit further. Who is God? Is God one? Is God three? Do you remember as a kid, those of us who grew up in the church being dumbfounded by this idea of the Trinity? Like, what are some ways in which you described on trying to understand the Trinity? Throw some out. What's that? The egg, right? So you have, okay, this is how the Trinity works. You have the hard shell, and you have the white, and then you have the yolk. And when you put it all together, it's the egg, Right? Well, that's a heresy called partialism, which means that, you know, there's your part of it, and then, anyways, 
Uh, what's another metaphor that we use? Yeah. Different roles. Okay, haven't heard that one. Cool. Don't know what heresy that is, but I'm sure it is one. Uh, <clears throat> what's that? A triangle. Okay, you have different points of the triangle and all this stuff. What's that? Water. Okay, so water, modalism. That's, uh, that's another heresy. But um, So water is, you know, you have the same substance. It's made of the same DNA, but it's on three different modes, right? It's either solid, it's liquid, or it's gas, but it can never be the same at the same time, right? So you just have, it makes the whole like baptism of Jesus theme like really complicated and confusing on how that all works, right? The Trinity, the idea of the Trinity has had us scratching our heads and fighting since the very beginning of the church. We talked about a couple weeks ago how the creed actually predates both the Bible, the Apostles' Creed, it predates the Bible, and it predates any doctrinal creeds that we have in the church that try to define what it is we believe. Rather, it was a confession. The first doctrinal confession or creed that we have, and the most substantial for the life of the church, even till today, is the Creed of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed. It happened in 325 AD, and then was amended in around 380, okay? Why was that council called in the first place? It happened just south of Istanbul, and it happened right after Constantine had just gained his throne, and Christianity was now legal in the empire. The story of how the Nicene Creed was, or why the Nicene Creed was called, was a controversy over how to understand how Jesus could be human and divine at the same time and differences in a perspective on, on how this worked. There was a guy who, um, his name, he was the Bishop of Alexander, Bishop Alexander, and uh, a guy by the name of Arius, who was probably born in Libya but was studying in Antioch, heard Bishop Alexander teaching and his heresy trigger started going off. He started to, to think that Bishop Alexander was promoting this idea of the egg, right? Partialism. That you have this, this Jesus who wasn't fully God, he wasn't fully, he, you know, the, each member of the Trinity was only partially God, and they come together, and that defines God. And this triggered him. And so he started to preach a different message about who Jesus was. Well, there was, there was something in the ancient mind about how they understood God. This actually stems back in the Hebrew tradition that made understanding how Jesus could be human and God exceedingly complicated. The Hebrew perspective was that there were two characteristics of, of God, or these came into play. There were more than this, but two characteristics that defined who God was was that God could not change. He was perfect. He was static, complete static perfection. Nothing could change God. He was unchangeable. And the second was this unchanging God could not suffer. So if God can't change and God can't suffer, how does God become human and then die on the cross, right? 
So he begins to, Arius begins to preach this message that Jesus was actually human, but he had a God-like being. He was God-like, and that somehow he related to God, but he wasn't fully God. He had a human substance, right? So they get to, they call this meeting, all these bishops from all around the world come, and they begin to argue about how do we understand God and people's minds are turning upside down. Bishop Alexander stands up and he has a creative way of turning the script on Arius. And he says, okay, I have a question for you. If the sun is the sun, or if the sun has a beginning, then there was a time that the father was not the father. Because in order to be a father, you have to have a son. And so if there was a time that the father was not the father, then the father has changed and is therefore not God, right? And uh, all these bishops are scratching their head. They're like, aha, yes, right, you got it right. And in that council, they condemn Arius as heresy, and they, they adopt the Nicene Creed, and this becomes the mantra of the church that Jesus and the Father are of one substance. They are both God. But the argument doesn't stop there. It continues to go on as humans begin try desperately to wrap their minds around how this Trinitarian relationship can exist. And then in the 8th century, a guy by the name of John, uh, who actually was it, Gregory of Nazianzus? No, hold on. Who was it? Anyways, a desert father. Um, he, the, the desert fathers, they dealt a lot more with mystery than these heady people studying in Antioch and Alexander, Alexandria and stuff like that. And he came up with this word as the church began to explore what it meant for, how do we understand how the Trinity works together? He came up with this word perichoresis. Have you heard of the word perichoresis? Perichoresis is two Latin words. One, peri means around, and choresis is the word chorus, dance, rhythm, right? As these desert fathers like led us into the mystery, understanding the mystery of how God works, they open our eyes to this idea of God being a this rhythm, this dance. Perichoresis. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existing in harmony with one another, and we can only understand the nature of God if we understand the nature of relationship and rhythm and dance. We can't dissect it. We can't pull it apart. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is neither but it's when we hold these three in tension and this relationality dances around that we then have God, that we then have the mystery of the Trinity that we are drawn into. Period. Full stop. 
Now, I have lost half of the congregation right now as like, okay, this is heady philosophical stupidity, and this is precisely why I do not like theology and I don't like church talk, because it just is heady, it's abstract, it's nuanced, blah, blah, blah. The other half of you are like, yeah, let's geek out about Trinitarian theology. This is wonderful. We can talk later. There is a point and there is beauty to this madness. What we cannot ignore, we cannot ignore, that when we ask the question, what is and who is God, at the bedrock, at the foundation of that question, lies the reality that God is relationship. God is relationship. Let me unpack this a little bit further. Has anybody been inside the Hagia Sophia? Been inside the... The Hagia Sophia is an ancient Byzantine building in Istanbul today. And it was constructed by Justinian, who is like, he's the emperor who transitioned the Roman Empire into the Byzantine Empire. He kind of marks that transition. And let's just say, without going into detail of who this guy was, he was a real treat, right? He was a real treat of a human being. Um, And he had a little bit of an arrogance problem, right? He decides that he is going to be the mightiest ruler the world has ever seen. So, of course, what do you do? You erect the most impressive building on the planet. If you go into the Hagia Sophia, the first thing that takes your breath away is the sheer size of it. It is just absolutely monumental. And it revolutionized the world of architecture. They didn't have these big domed roofs that that they had, and, and how they put it all together was just a revolutionary Uh, uh, feat that Justinian had these architects do. And the legend has it that when Justinian finished the, the construction of the Hagia Sophia, he stood back, he looked at this structure, and he says, Solomon, I have surpassed you, right? Solomon being the man who built the temple of God Justinian's sheer ego drove him to surpass Solomon, to be the most mighty. And when you walk into the Hagia Sophia, it's almost impossible to not be engulfed by the ego that exists in this place. It is impressive. It is mad. It is enormous. And it displays the character and the handiwork of its architect, right? Let me paint another picture. Have you ever looked at Van Gogh's paintings, right? Or Van Gogh, however you Dutch people say it, right? Um, If you look at Van Gogh's paintings and then you know his life, or when you look at him, you're like, okay, this is beautiful, This is broken, this is dark, this is light, this is, it's, uh, you feel something when you look at his paintings. It's organized chaos. 
and you put his paintings and his short brushstrokes and his choppiness and all that in connection with his life, there is something that can be seen and felt in Van Gogh's paintings and how it paints this picture of who this artist is. We live, you and I, are brushstrokes of God's painting. And we live in a world filled with God's little brushstrokes. And if we look at the world that God created us in and for us, we will see a world of relational mind-blowingness, beauty. The world exists in relationship. Think of the Genesis story. God creates light and dark, dry land and the sea, male and female, sea animals and birds of the air. And he takes all of these opposites, these things that don't belong together, and he makes them dance. He puts them together. It's when they come together that you have rhythm and you have life, and you have this beautiful thing that we call earth and the things that sustain our lives. It's a mystery that I breathe out the things that the, that the trees breathe in, and they breathe out the thing that I breathe in. And I can't breathe in the thing that I breathe out, and they can't breathe in the thing that they breathe out. And we live in rhythm and relationality with one another. You can't remove one and have the other. There's a dance going on. Why is there a dance in the universe? Because the God of the universe exists in a dance. The God of the universe is one and different, and it rhythms, and it works, and it dances together, and that is who the God of the universe is. That's how the God of the universe functions. That's his essence. That's his character. Father, Son, and Spirit, not to be divided, not to be enmeshed, but working together in rhythm and dance. God is relational. The second piece of this, as we read in the scripture tonight, is what else is God? God is relational God is love. John doesn't tell us that God is loving, right? He, there's a difference. There's a difference of being loving, of exuding loving characteristics or having characteristics of love. No, John tells us in annoying repetition. Did you get annoyed by the end of that passage? It's like, Whenever a biblical author really wants you to get something, they're going to annoy you. They're just going to say it over and over and over and over and over again. And John says in about 15 different ways, pay attention, God is love. That is a characteristic. It's not a characteristic. It flows out of his essence, out of his being. Now, love for us is actually a very challenging topic. When I, if I get up here and I say, I'm going to preach a sermon tonight, and the topic of my sermon is God is love, right? 
Half of us check out and it's like, okay, here's the Christianese jargon that I've heard forever that ends in somebody saying God is love or God loves you and nothing's attached to it. It's just this floating statement that doesn't really mean anything, right? Or some of us are like, okay, well, great. What is your definition of love? Because I was struck in the face countless times by somebody who told me that they were doing it in the spirit of tough love, right? And I don't understand what you mean by love. We need to look at this relational God, this God who is inherently relational. And as we look at that next to this idea that God is love, I think that we start to see, we start to explore and dig up a new definition of love that I think has profound uh, implications and consequences and beauty for the life that we live. One of my favorite professors, uh, Dan Bruner, he was my church history professor. I got to um, be a TA for him and just absolutely loved studying under this guy. Um, he had this thing that he would, whenever he would do a merit, uh, a wedding, he would, he talks about love in this way. And whenever he would do like premarital counseling with a couple, and I use this now a lot as well, typically when we see broken relationship, especially marriage relationships, there's one of two things that happen in that relationship. We're not going to dig our heads in the sands and ignore the fact that we live in Western society in patriarchal-driven, male-dominant culture that is a reality of our existence. And consequently, what oftentimes has happened historically and continues to happen in married relationships is when we acknowledge that two people, two individuals are becoming one, there has been a tendency that in that process, one of the spouses, typically the woman in, in the relationship, ends up losing a self of identity as they enter into this oneness. The relationship is driven forward by the man. The man dictates the pace. The man has the name, all of that kind of stuff. The woman loses a sense of herself, comes in, surrenders to to her husband, and her new identity is in, caught up in whatever her husband's identity is, and that's how the relationship goes forward. We end up doing a lot of counseling with that, those types of relationships because it fosters what we now call enmeshment and codependencies, right? There's when somebody loses themselves into this relationship fully, and they, they all of a sudden no longer have a sense of self outside of this relational context. In our modern way of distancing ourselves from our patriarchal past and the oppression of that, we end up doing the opposite, right? We enter into a married relationship, we sign our prenuptial agreements, we make sure that there's always an out, and we say, I keep my identity, you keep your identity, we're going to move forward in cooperations with our own identity, don't tell me who I need to be, you don't tell me who I need to be, and along that path and along that journey, we end up in isolation and loneliness. 
We're not two people becoming one. We're just going on our all paths, cooperating with one another. The mystery of marriage and the mystery of love is being caught up in this tension and this rhythm of two unique God-made beings coming together as one, learning to dance in all of their oneness and all of their uniqueness. Tethered together in that tension and not destroying either of the sides. Why? Because we too are relational beings. And the essence of love is anchored in the essence of God. And the essence of God is a Trinitarian relationship that dance and rhythms together. Our love relationships with one another, with our spouse, with our friends, are tied up. It's a byproduct of this created being that God has gifted to us that demands a dance and a rhythm that we're invited into. But it goes without saying that that type of vulnerability, entering in to the rhythm of love and to maintaining a sense of self while giving yourself entirely to others, is a terrifying place. John reminds us, this is how we know that God loved us. How does he know? that? How do we know that God loved us? That he allowed his son, a person of the Trinity, to suffer and to die and to show us a better way and to resurrect into new life. He allowed that to happen. That's how we know that he loves us. And then he says, And yet the greatest enemy of love is what? It's fear. There is no fear in love, John tells us, but perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because fear condemns. Fear displays guilt. And yet we are a people so much more comfortable with fear than we are with surrender. Think about the story of Moses leading Israel out of the desert, the story of the golden calf when Aaron constructs the golden calf for the Israelites. God led Israel through the parted sea. After the parted sea, there was no water, so God poured water out from a rock. Then the water they had was contaminated, so God cleaned up the contaminated water. And then they didn't have any food, so God let dew called manna, what is it, rest on the ground in the morning for them to eat. The rhythm of God sustaining them and being for them and with them was a part of their story. It was everywhere. Then Moses goes up the hill. The story of the golden calf 
comes right smack dab in the center of Moses going up the hill to dialogue with God, the God who freed the people, who saved them, who provided for them in miraculous ways time and time again, to go up there to meet with God and to discuss the plans for the tabernacle, which was going to be God's dwelling place, his relational dwelling place among the people. But it took a while. Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days. And the people over the course of those 40 days are sitting there going, did Moses die? Where is he? Did God abandon us? Where is he? Aaron, build us something that we can see. Build us something that we can touch. Build us something that we can control, that we can put our hope in, that can lead us into the future. And so they gather all of their their gold and they put it into a pot and Aaron melts it down and they build this calf. While God is making plans to dwell among his people, the people are demanding that they can see, that they can touch, that they can smell, that they can control the thing that moves them into the future. And it's so easy. Israel is such the low-hanging fruit to like bag on these people, saying, Israel, you just are so dumb. You do the same thing over and over and over and over again, right? And yet, we're the exact same people. We are so bored with God. We are so bored with the rhythms of creation, with the miraculous sustaining of life that exists all around us. We are bored with the galaxy. We demand that God proves himself while laying on the ground and looking up in the stars, at the stars. We demand that God afresh prove himself to us and we do not consider our heartbeat as miraculous. We demand that God prove himself while we breathe the air that he's providing for us right this second. We demand that's not enough. The manna is not enough. The water is not enough. Prove yourself over again. Come up with something new, God. And guess what? He doesn't do it. He's not going to play our games. He's going to provide the manna on the ground. He's going to provide the oxygen that we breathe. He will continuously do that, and he's going to make plans to dwell among us. He makes his plans to invade our space, to occupy our lives, to dwell among us so that we can orient our lives around him and follow him. And he is a patient God who is so unbelievably long-suffering in our tedious complaints. My, and I talk to myself, I mean, this is like, I'm speaking to myself here. But this is, this is the world that we live in. This is the culture that we live in. Mystery, unacceptable. Where the universe stems from, not how the universe was created and came to being, that's a different conversation, but where the universe was birthed out of, that is not a conversation that we want to have. We want to talk about the things that we can see, that we can touch, that we can control, and the things that we can know. 
We don't want to enter into the danger of a relational God who we can't wrap our minds around because that God is scary. And he causes us to live differently than the world that we, than the way in which this world lives that leads to destruction because he is a God that desires resurrection and wholeness. The Hebrew concept of Resurrection is this idea of shalom. We just say, oh yeah, it means peace. It means a whole lot more than peace. It means rhythm. It means life, wholeness, reconciliation, mended relationship. God longs to see a broken world and a broken people brought back together to mimic his essence, relationality, connectedness, working in rhythm together, And that is how, Christians, we live the kingdom of God in the here and now. And that is why when we take care of the earth, it's not this disconnected process from our call as followers of Jesus, but it is a part of the rhythm of our life. It is a part of the shalom and the wholeness that God has sown in to us and leads to new life that we get to participate in and enjoy together. In way of conclusion, as we become people who are transformed by this idea, we believe in God, may we be a people who commit ourselves to radical relationship. I hope that Theophilus forms an identity, that people are like, that's a weird church. That is a really weird church. I don't quite get them, but man, they're relational. (laughs) They just love people. We as Christians, we craft these really interesting sayings like, love the sinner, hate the sin, right? It's really just us tethering on to our anxieties of, if I go all in on this thing, then what could possibly be the negative ramifications Let's leave the negative ramifications and our anxieties at the door here. Let's commit ourselves to radical relationship and reconciliation, and let's let the God of the universe, who's all about shalom and all about resurrection, bring that into the lives of our so-called sinners among us, me, you, everybody else. Let's go reckless abandon in relationship and love to our neighbors, to one another. May that be the thing that defines us because it is at its heart the essence of the God that we serve. God is love. God is relationship. As we are transformed by that love and that relationship, may we mimic the exact same thing. We're going to come to the Lord's table here in the front and in the back. And as John reminds us that we know that God loves us because the sacrifice he gave is ultimate. He disrupted the natural rhythms of this world that tell us what power and control and victory is by taking on the cross so that we can be brought into true, genuine, whole relationship that leads to new life. There's elements up here and in the back. If you're serving, please make your way. There's gluten-free elements 
at each station. All are welcome who are seeking the life and resurrection of Jesus. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.